Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I think so. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. We're still locked down. I'm still Dave Hendon and Michael McMullen is still Michael McMullen in Ireland. How are you doing? Well, I'm bald now, Dave, because I can't get my hair cut and I was starting to look like one of the Jackson 5. So the other day I thought, well, I'm going to have to take the, the trimmer on my razor to uh, trim it back a bit. And of course, you know, at the moment I started doing it, I realised the only way this is going to work is if it all goes. So I've got even less hair than you now. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah, I'm quite envious that you even have the choice. But anyway, yeah. yes, uh, yeah. Well, Colin Murray, I noticed, put a picture up of him, him shaving his own head. But uh, these are these are strange times, as we know. But we're continuing with the podcast, and uh, this week we have uh, a topic. We talked last week in depth about the World Championship. We celebrated the World Championship. This week, we're going to be discussing basically everything but the World Championship because the topic is the greatest matches ever played, Crucible not included. So we're discounting the World Championship because that always is going to take precedence just because of the, the nature of it. So we're going to basically name three matches each. Now, the important thing to say is we haven't discussed what they are. So it could possibly be that there's going to be crossover. We may even pick the same three. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, but before we start, I think it's worth looking at what makes a great match and it comes down to a few things. I think obviously standard of play and quite often that's marked out in breaks, centuries, clearances, also safety play, uh, just general high standard. Also, I think drama, and that usually means a close match. It usually means a match possibly where it's swung around. Someone's been in front, someone's come, come and won it at the death. So close matches might take precedence and also significance. And I can say right from the start that all of my matches are finals because, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah because finals obviously are the match you remember from the tournament, the most important match. They are what, you know, how you find a champion. Also, I think in terms of significance, who's involved, what the story is, it can be a significant moment maybe in the game's history. There could be something on the line for that particular player. So that's all in the mix. Now, obviously, people listening to this, the first thing you you think of when you hear things like this is, okay, but what about these other matches? And you'll have your own thoughts. By all means, send them in. Our email address, I'll I'll give it out again at the end, but our email address, snookersingpodcast at mail.com. These are just our choices. We're only experts in our own opinions, and these are our own opinions. So, Michael, I'm going to get, let you start. What is your first choice? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, it's all finals for me, all three that I've picked. I think the final, 
for, for one thing, they're nearly always, with a few exceptions in recent years, they're nearly always at least two sessions. So that gives time for a real story to develop. And as you say, the final is the ultimate. It, it's just got a completely different feel to any other match because all the other matches, it's like if you win this match, there's still a chance you might win the tournament. But if you win the final, you actually have definitively won the tournament and you can't replicate that in anything else. So I've gone for all finals three of the finals I've gone for went to a deciding frame well, finish. Just before you carry on, there's one thing I meant to say as well. Um, there's several matches that we won't have seen as well. So we haven't seen every snooker match. And what I mean by that is I considered actually putting a non-final in, that Jimmy Whitekirk-Stevens match at the Masters. But actually, yes. but actually, you can't watch that whole match. You can only see like the 50-odd minutes that the BBC showed in highlights form at the time. So the only people who saw that match were actually at the match or indeed playing in it. So... Mine that skewed slightly more recently than that, I think. But um, anyway, yeah, carry on. Yeah, okay. So the first one I'm going for is the 1996 British Open final. And a lot mm. of people won't remember the British Open uh, because it hasn't been played since 2004. But when it started in 1985, it was right from the start seen as ITV's flagship event. It was briefly the richest first prize in snooker because it was the first snooker tournament ever to offer a £50,000 first prize. It was won by Silvino Francisco, although a few weeks later, there was the £60,000 first prize at the World Championship. And at that time, it was also the last ranking event before the World Championship. And it retained that status for a number of years. Then it wasn't for a while. But by the 1990s, sort of the mid-90s, when it was on Sky Sports, it had become, once again, the last ranking tournament before Sheffield. And that always added an edge to it. And in 1996, it was played over the Easter period, and it was an absolutely magnificent tournament. And, of course, Sky, by that stage, were doing that pioneering thing, really, where they mm. just showed live all day long. Now, Nigel Bond had a big win on the Good Friday, actually, against Stephen Hendry. They'd played, I think, 10 or 11 times prior to that, and Bond had only won one of them. But this time he actually did beat Hendry, who had a pretty poor day, actually. Bond beat him by five frames to four. So that took him through to the quarterfinals. And then he found himself in the final on Easter Monday against John Higgins, who at that time, although he was still only uh, 20 years of age, was quite possibly the best player in the world already. He was certainly getting very close to Hendry. Um, Bond had been in three ranking finals by then. And uh, Higgins, though, was a very big favourite to beat him. And you were starting to feel if Bond didn't win a ranking event soon, it might not happen for him because he was 30 at the time. And incredible, though, it seems at that time, that was considered old for a snooker player because you had all these young guys, Higgins, Williams, O'Sullivan, even Hendry, who dominated the game for years, was only 27. So there was a feeling maybe that Bond kind of had to win this or maybe time was starting to run out for him. It seems laughable now. 30 is actually quite young for a player now. But uh, Bond got off to a great start. He went 4-1 up. Higgins closed to 4-3, and then he actually leveled at 4-all by winning the first frame of the final session. And Bond went ahead again at 5-4, at 6-5, at 7-6, at 8-7. At each time, Higgins drew level. Then in the last frame, of course, Higgins leading 61-0 with six reds left. So he only needs red and black. Pots the red. Takes the black to go 69 in front with 67 left, but put everything into the pot and didn't leave himself an easy red after that. So Bond got back in. I'm sure most people know the story who were around at the time. He needed a snooker. He got it. Higgins later attempted the pink for the title, but he missed it. And it all came down to Bond attempting a magnificent death or glory black. And it was one of those moments where the whole final just hinged on that because there was no way if he missed it that he wasn't going to leave it on. So really, Bond's whole career sort of hinged on that black, really. That was the difference between him being a ranking event winner and not being a ranking event winner. And he potted it with magnificent shot, great courage. And uh, 
He had won what proved to be, so far, of course, because he's still a very able competitor now, his one and only ranking title. So for me, that was one of the great finals. It's a very good choice, and it brings into focus a, a, a slight tangent, but it's one of my sort of, as you know, hobby horses. Um, it's almost like the British Open and the Grand Prix were huge events, and they kind of the shine's been slightly taken off them in modern times with this focus on the Triple Crown. Um, yeah. Back in the day, the, the, the British Open and the Grand there was there was a time when the, the, those tournaments had bigger first prizes than the Masters. You know, the British Open, the Grand Prix, those sort of big ranking events, the Mercantile Classic, they were huge, huge events. And winning one of those was every bit as important as winning anything really other than the world or maybe the UK because the UK was longer matches. Um, yeah, it's interesting, though. You still, When people talk about Nigel, quite often he's, he's he'll be introduced as former world championship runner-up. Be yeah. quite, quite right. That was a phenomenal match and a phenomenal win. And again... It's who he's playing as well to do it against Higgins, who, as you say, by then, you know, he'd become the first player to win three ranking events as a teenager. And he was very much the heir apparent to Stephen Hendry. I think people thought he would be after Davis, after Hendry, it would be Higgins. It didn't quite work out in terms of the same amount of dominance, but obviously, you know, he had a pretty good career, as we know. Um, yeah. And, and also, I think the fact that Nigel won it, it's a bit like the, the 85 final, the fact that it was Dennis who won it. So it, it showed you that okay, you know, the underdog could actually come through in that sort of match. Yeah, and a couple of other things to say about it. One is that Nigel has never beaten John again. I think they've met about eight times. They played as recently as last season, actually. And John has won them all since that final back in 96. The other thing to say about that, as I was saying, the final was on Easter Monday. Now, Sky Sports now have about seven or eight sports channels. Back then, they only had two. So there was some unusual scheduling sometimes to fit in all the events they had. And it being Easter Monday, there were a lot of other things on. I think there might have been some Super League on. There was a big Premier League football match that night. I think it was Blackburn against Newcastle. So the only way they could fit the snooker into all that was to have the first session at 11 in the morning. And the final session actually started at 3 in the afternoon, which meant it all finished about 5.30, 6 o'clock. So no problems with late finishes. And Stuart Weir, an old friend of ours who was press officer at that time, I remember him saying that the coverage in the papers the next day was absolutely fantastic, not just because even more so because it finished early and they knew it was going to finish early. But of course, never learned from that. We went straight back to having the okay. late finishes. But uh, it, it was a magnificent final at the end of what I certainly remember as an absolutely wonderful, wonderful tournament. Here's a question. I only know this because I've looked it up. Who was the referee? Was it Len Ganley? It was Len Ganley, yeah. <laughs> it was Len Ganley. Right, OK, well, that's number one. Uh, and I didn't choose that one, so I'm going to have my first choice. And this this is a match from this season. Not not that, you know, my, not that I've got a short memory or anything, but this but this is the Champion of Champions final between Neil Robertson and Judd Trump, which I just thought was phenomenal. Um, eight centuries in the 19 frames. Robertson had five, Trump three. Not only that, a couple of frames late on weren't after needing snookers. It's interesting. I was talking to a, a well-known player at the Championship League, I won't name, and he and it wasn't. It must have been in the January, um, so it was a couple of months after. And he said we were talking about the match. And he said, "Oh yeah, it didn't impress me that much." He said, "I'm not that impressed with centuries." He said, "The frames I like were the ones weren't after needing snookers." But of course, the reason he's not impressed by centuries is because he can make them. This is the thing with snooker players yeah, maybe, yeah. Don't, maybe don't understand that. However many people were watching in the audience or at home, how many of those are century break makers? To most of us, making a century is incredible. Um, snooker players, top snooker players, you know, they get, get up in the morning, go down the club, they'll make a century. It's no big deal to them. So watching it maybe is no big deal. But the, 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 the quality of play um, and also 
the kind of um, the style of play. You know, you've got Judd Trump and Neil Robertson, two great potters. Robertson's become, I think, a great all-round player. He, his early rawness has, has gone. Trump, as well, he's a fantastic safety player now. So, he, he, you know, he's very much, you know, the world number one in terms of really all areas of the game now. He's got it all, as we've seen from both of them this season. And in a way, it was a portent of what, what was to come. I know Trump had won Thomas already during the season, but those two have been the two players of the season. I just thought they put on a great show. There was there was nothing about the final not to like. And I wanted to kind of pick a, a modern match. It's, it's easy to sort of think it was all better, you know, years ago. Well, actually, the standard now is very, very high, and, and these guys are producing it, and they certainly did that day. Yeah, and I think as well, what added to that, the Champion of Champions is an event which very quickly now, it's only been around a little while, but the players already regard that as one of the high points of the season. I know Neil Robertson himself has actually spoken about this, how he regards that as being, you know, right up there with the biggest events. And I suppose when you've got the players who won all the other tournaments over the previous 12 months, and then you come out on top, you know you've had a tough run through it. And yeah, absolutely. I actually considered that match, but I was fairly sure you were going to put it in, actually. So I thought I'd leave that one to you. Uh, and I think when we look back on that in maybe 20 years' time, uh, it'll seem even 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 better because, as you say, sometimes you do have a tendency when you're thinking about all-time greats and all-time great matches not to think of the recent ones. But, mm. uh, yeah, absolutely, that, that one has to be included. Okay, so that's on the list. Um, now, so it's over to you then for your next choice. I'm, I'm going to guess you've picked this one as well, but maybe not. It's a long way back now. It's 30 years ago this year, the 1990 yeah. UK Championship final. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or it has to be. So basically the story with this, it was Stephen Hendry against Steve Davis. Hendry had had an amazing year. He'd become world number one. He'd become world champion. And he went 5-0 up in the final and was playing absolutely brilliantly. I mean, the, the standard he produced in those first five frames, even now would be saying it was great. But the thing was, only a few weeks before that, quite early on in the season, Hendry had beaten Davis 9-1 in the final in Dubai. And when he went 5-0 up, he thought... Here we go again. This is him now really stamping his authority on Davis and on the sport. He's finishing out 1990 by, by winning this big title and uh, crowning this wonderful year he's had. Now, Davis did get a couple of frames back, but even at 7-2, I mean, that's still a five-frame deficit. But he just kept playing better and better as the match went on. There were a number of very close frames, but Davis was scoring probably more heavily than Henry actually, uh, for most of that final. And he led for the first time at 15-14. He had a substantial lead in the next frame. But that clearance of 57 that Henry made to level at 15-all, I think it's even better than people remember. We always talk about that blue that he popped uh, using the rest. But there were so many other great shots. The last red with the rest, that was a magnificent shot. Cutting in the yellow, coming around off a couple of cushions to get on the uh, green. I mean, these were all wonderful shots as well. And the thing about that blue, he had actually made it much more difficult for himself by knocking that blue close to the cushion in trying to get on the last red. And even after he's potted that blue with the rest, it was still a really good pink for the frame. And uh, what a test of nerve. And there was a, a rare release of emotion from Henry. How many times in his whole career did we see him uh, punch uh, the air with his fist? I can only think of two. There was the 91 Masters final when he came from 8-2 down. And when he potted that pink to level... And then right at the start of the deciding frame, Davis is left a chance at a long red from Henry's break-off, but he missed it, and it could not have finished worse because he left a red onto the corner, he scattered a number of other reds. It was an absolute dream chance. And from the moment Henry arrived at the table, the form he was in at that time, 
he suspected that he was probably going to clinch it in one go. And he did with a break of 98. And had Davis won that final, it would have been his first ranking title in over a year. And it would have been a bit of a statement for him to make because he'd lost the UK final the year before to Hendry. Obviously, as I say, he'd been overtaken as world champion and as world number one. If he'd managed to win that UK final, that might have marked the start of a resurgence for him, which didn't actually happen um, until a couple of years later when he did start winning tournaments quite regularly again. But uh, just one of the one of the most fantastic finishes there's ever been uh, to a final, and I think to me, if you were if we were to pick a number one match outside of World Championship matches in the whole history of the game, the quality there was, the drama of the clearance in the uh, penultimate frame, the significance of it all, and the fact that it was Henry and Davis who, at that time, were without any question at all the two greatest players there had ever been. I would put put that as the number one match that we've ever seen outside of the World Championship. Yeah, it ticks all the boxes, as you say, the standard, the, the drama and the significance. They actually they, they were introduced into Preston Guildhall to simply the best, the Tina Turner song. Um, I think it's actually called the best. But anyway, um, and they were, you know, at the time they were the two. Even Henry was even, you know, he was only what 20 at the time, 21. Uh, but even even by that point, he'd become world champion. Obviously, he'd beaten Davis the year before in the UK final. But I think this did mark the sort of passing of the torch. Uh, for two reasons. One, from one dominant force to another, because although he'd been in the year before, um, since then he'd become world champion. And I guess the, the, the tendency is to think, OK, you've won the world championship. Can you be a multiple winner? Can you dominate? To which the answer, of course, was yes. And I think also it was a passing of the torch in terms of the way the game is played, because that blue, I mean, you're right about the clearance, but that blue was an outrageous shot rest. Um, extraordinary. The nerve, the precision required to, to take it on to get it. Incredible, and I think without any question, regardless of whether you know, we, we I mean, me and Neil went to the pub and did Neil Falls went to the pub and did that greatest um, debate. Whatever your view about who the greatest is, there's no doubt that Stephen Hendry is significant, not just for what he won, but for the fact that he changed the way the game was played. The old conservative way of playing went out the window. It became all about attacking, all about trying to get in, make breaks, and everyone who's come along since who's been successful has followed that model. Um, he wasn't the first to play like that, but he was the most successful at uh, doing it. And, of course, went on to dominate for, you know, the 90s. And, you know, time passes. And it's important, I think, not to forget his contribution. I'm sure snooker fans haven't. But what a player and what a win. And Davis, he did win a few tournaments after that. But it was clear, I think, in his own mind at that point that, OK, things have changed. Someone's come along who's finally better than me. I mean, I as you did, I grew up in the 1980s. Looked like he would always be the best player. Margaret Thatcher looked like she'd always be prime minister. A few weeks before, a few weeks before this final, she was finally toppled. So it just showed you things can change, and and they did change. And and uh, we were into the year of Hendry and, and well and John Major, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and, and you, know, you talk there about the fact that Hendry went on to dominate the nineties, which he did, but he never actually dominated it again as he had in nineteen ninety because when he won that UK final, that was his fifth ranking title in a row. I mean, that was an mm. unbelievable thing to achieve. It was, the run was ended. He almost made it six. He then lost in the Mercantile final uh, just a few weeks later. But uh, he was only 21 at the time, as we were saying. And you would have thought, if this is how good he is at 21, winning five ranking events in a row, how dominant is he going to become in the years ahead? But he never actually quite achieved the same level of dominance and superiority that he did in 1990 ever again. But he didn't do too badly. No, and also, the, I guess... New stars started started to come through, sort of, as I say, sort of 
modelling themselves on the way he played and, and, and you know the game went open and suddenly there were all these hungry young players snapping at his heels speaking of which a nice segue into my next choice which uh, is the 2006 Masters final between John, John Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan this is the last Masters ever to be played at the Wembley Conference Centre um, I think you know I mean the first thing to say is obviously Higgins won 10-9 with that amazing clearance it's worth saying Ronnie had given him a couple of beatings in, in Masters final prior to that, including the year before, I believe. Um, yeah. But at the start of the day, you think, you know, it's one of those matches. And again, it's like Davis Hendry and indeed Robertson Trump. Settle down and think, whatever happens, this is going to be enjoyable. Even if it's a runaway, it'll be a great exhibition of snooker. If it's close, it's going to be exciting. And indeed, it was close. It looked like O'Sullivan might again run away with his 3-0 up. Higgins uh, went in ahead 5-3. 7-5, and then it was nip and tuck, uh, O'Sullivan 9-8 up, Higgins levelled up, O'Sullivan in with 60, breaks down in the decider, and John Higgins goes for a red to the right middle, and it just stays on the lip, and then drops. If it doesn't drop, Ronnie wins, you know, he's already 60 in front, not much to do. It drops in, and John Higgins did what he does so often, has done a song before, so often since, and that's make clearance under pressure. There's nobody better for me at making clearances under pressure than John Higgins. And one of the things that factors, I think, is that he somehow just concentrates on the shots. And that's obviously not easy to do with the occasion, especially at Wembley with, you know, nearly 3,000 people, some of them about a drink, by the way, um, and obviously millions watching at home. You can see it in his face, Higgins, when he's concentrating, that intensity that he has. He's just focusing on the shots. And, of course, he knows because he has that mind, what the shots are, what what the shots are to play. Um, I think the problems he's had in terms of form over the years have come when actually the concentration has just wandered and he can't actually give it that focus. But he made an incredible clearance, literally brought the house down because they, <laughs> because they knocked the place down. And yeah. and again, it's not just the, the, the drama and, and, the, and the standard, but the fact that he's done it against Ronnie, because if he slips up, Ronnie's going to win. You know, Ronnie's not going to bottle it. Um just a fabulous occasion between the two best players of the last 20 years, the two most successful, certainly. Um, Higgins was absolutely fine at that time. Yeah. Uh, he'd had that brilliant Grand Prix final only a couple of months earlier against O'Sullivan when he won, I think it was 9-2, and he made all those centuries and the uh, massive number of unanswered points. And it turned out to be a great season for him, but it ended in disappointment, actually, because I, th- yeah. I thought he was going to win his second world title that season, ended up losing in the first round. Uh, which was a real surprise. And it also looked for a long time as he was going to finish the season as world number one. Somewhat bizarrely, Stephen Hendry actually ended up going back to number one at the end of that season. But yeah, I I mean, Higgins and O'Sullivan are are an extraordinary phenomenon, the two of them, just in sporting history, in fact, because very often heavyweight clashes, particularly in sports like football, can be a disappointment. They've played about 70 times and nearly every single one of them uh, you know, has, has lived up to expectations. Mm. It's either been a case of one of them producing a performance from the ages for the ages and winning easily, or it's been a match like the one you've just described, where there's been a brilliant finish. You think back to as far back as 1995, 25 years ago now, when as a couple of kids they met in the quarterfinals of the of the Welsh Open and had that wonderful match there. So they've very rarely failed to deliver when those two have met, and even now, after all these years. Whenever they meet, you expect it to be another classic, and it very often is. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's a number of factors at play. The, the number one factor is just how good they are, obviously. But also, you know, I mean, John Higgins is the player that Ronnie puts above everyone else. So it's a different match for him playing John Higgins than it is anyone else. Um, but winning, I, I think, is sweeter for Ronnie when he beats him. Um, and I think 
if he loses to him, he will maybe learn something from the way John's played in, in terms of how what he takes away from it. So it's a fascinating rivalry. Um, I, I wouldn't say they're best pals, but they're certainly not enemies either. You know, they're rivals on the table. That's it. I think they get on perfectly well. Two very interesting characters. We often lump them in, of course, with Mark Williams as well, the other member, celebrating member, class of 92. The, the, the key thing is, you know, that was, what, 14 years ago, and they're still going strong. I mean, Ronnie didn't play in the Masters this year because he decided not to, but, you know, there's still two players who, when they play now, it's not actually about sort of nostalgia. It's still going to be high quality if they play now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that the fact that it was the last one at Wembley, I mean, what a fitting send-off for that for that great venue. And and just the, 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 the sheer nerve that Higgins displayed clearing up, you know, amazing, really. Um, people overthink I think sometimes Dave you know when they're analysing why is it that Higgins and O'Sullivan and Williams are still you know such good players and achieving so much so far into their careers and at such an advanced age and like I say people overthink it they try to analyse it in some deep way no you don't need to it's just because they're so very very good and you look at that final and everything that happened in it and that just underlines that point of just how good they are and Looking back on it now, it's perhaps no surprise that they're still such good players after all these years, because when you're that good, you stay that good for a very long time, generally. But what a finish it was to all those years at Wembley Conference Centre. You couldn't have asked for it to be any better than that. Absolutely. And and, and what's funny as well, just final point on it, is it's often said John Higgins has a bad record in the Masters. Um, but that's just judging him because of, I mean, they said it about Steve Davis. Steve only won it three times. John's only won it twice. Well, you know, most people would take that, that break to win the Masters as the career highlight. Um, but that, as I say, just shows, you know, what a great career he's had. Okay, well, obviously, um, we've got one left, haven't we? Because uh, you, we, we crossed we crossed on one of them. So the, I'm interested to find out your final choice. Yeah, well, this, this is another Masters final, actually. It's from five years before that, 2001, the final between Paul Hunter and Fergal mm. O'Brien. And it was heading for not being a particularly memorable final because the afternoon session was a bit of a slog, as you'd expect with the greatest of respect for a session that <laughs> Fergal O'Brien was coming out on top of. He was 5-1 up at one stage. Now, had he won, it would have been a really big surprise, even though I think he was number nine in the world at the time. But he wasn't a player you generally would have regarded as someone who was going to win one of the big three titles. Now, he would love, actually, you saying that, because Fergal loved the fact that people, in his eyes, underestimated him. He loved proving people wrong. And he very nearly did in a big way. It wasn't a final anyone was expecting. Paul Hunter had been in the top 16 for long itself. But O'Brien went 5-1 up, and you thought, well, maybe he's actually going to do this year. Hunter starts coming back a bit, but O'Brien leading 7-3. Now, it's first to 10. He's closing in on it. And as he'll tell you himself, it all went wrong for him in frame 11. It was a close one. Paul Hunter ended up winning it, getting back to 7-4. Fergal maintains if he'd won that, he would have seen it out quite easily from there. But what a turnaround after that. And the big breaks hadn't been flowing for either player at all. But then Hunter just suddenly really got the bit between his teeth. He had four centuries in the next six frames. He had a 70-odd in the other frame that he won. Fergal chipped in, actually, with an 88 break, I think it was, to lead 8-6. He won that frame in one visit. But after that, he didn't uh, pot a ball for the next three frames. Hunter's leading by nine frames to eight. He's got a big lead, actually, in the next frame, and it looks as though it's going to finish 10-8. But O'Brien manages to uh, take it in a close finish, and they both had their chances on the decider, and... You know, we could spend all day talking about what unfolded on the colours and all the twists there were. And O'Brien had his chances, certainly, to finish it off. He wasn't quite able to get over the line. But uh, Hunter won it in the end. He's a 10-9 winner. It was the first of his three Masters titles. And, uh, of course, there was the whole story afterwards about the 
entertainment, shall we say, that he'd had between sessions. And um, just a really memorable occasion, dripping with tension. It meant so much to them, of course, because this was a big breakthrough moment for Paul Hunter. Tragically, of course, he never got to fulfill his potential. But, you know, you and I have both known Fergal well for a long time, Dave. We know what it would have meant to him mm. to win the Masters. And I think I remember sitting with him afterwards because very unusually he came out to the bar after the final. Uh, he doesn't normally do that, but uh, it was a very, very late night. Uh, and it went on very late into the night after that. But I think he knew that he had perhaps missed his big, big chance to win one of the big titles in the game. And it's a disappointment he still carries with him today. But uh, just a fantastic final. All, all about the final session, really. The afternoon uh, wasn't much to remember. But I think the fact that it was O'Brien and that he was closing in on perhaps pulling off what would have been one of the most surprising Masters wins, that made it a great story. And it just wasn't to happen for him. Interestingly, they never played again after that. Well, yeah, well, it, 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 it launched Paul, didn't it, as a star, obviously, the Masters live on the BBC, the manner in which you win it. I think as well... Venues can can suit certain personalities. He was a very gregarious character, and and someone like Wembley with a lot of people maybe would suit him better than the Crucible, you know, which is very kind of inhibited. Um, because and it can't be it can't be a, a coincidence that he did this three times. He three times behind in Masters finals came back and won in deciders. That says something about his character. Um, it was a great match, yeah. And the thing about the as you mentioned, you know, it, it became a big story that him, it, Paul, and Lindsay between sessions had gone back to the hotel for another session. Um, um, but actually, and people might think that was sort of contrived in some way by Paul. It wasn't. He was very innocently said it in the press conference. He just said, oh, yeah, we put Plan B into operation. Um, and, you know, it's a, obviously a tabloid newspaper dream. It's sort of that sort of story, even though basically man has sex with girlfriend is the story. Um, but it, it kind of, I think, endeared into a lot of people. He was, you know, this sort of quite humble young man, good looking young man who had, you know, not just won a snooker final, but there was something that was relatable about him in a, in a human sense. But that shouldn't overshadow just how well he played. He had like those four centuries and, you know, great display of nerve. Fergal O'Brien, not easy to beat at the best of times. And like you say, it would have meant a hell of a lot to Fergal to win it. Um, I think that what subsequently happened to Paul maybe put it into more perspective for him, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean... The Masters has had so many great finals, particularly in that period. I mean, Paul, as I say, was in three of them himself. Then we had the Higgins, O'Sullivan one. We've had a few other ones with Selby and O'Sullivan as well. Um, and it goes back to, I guess, what we were saying at the start, significance, because these are the tournaments you remembered for. And Paul Hunter, we always remember him, particularly at the Masters, of course, the trophy now. Thankfully, it is named after him. Um, and that was the start of it. Yeah, it was a great match, that. And... Uh, you know, as I say, it sort of launched Paul as a as a as a star that that meant something outside of just the snooker circles. Yeah, and that's you know, you mentioned the tabloid headlines the next day. Now, it is a story I have to say that's grown legs over the years. I think people mm. have said things about you know how it all happened and how the story came out, which are just definitively not true. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was a big occasion and a big story at the time, and also the fact that the way he made those breaks. I mean, he was a very fast player when he got into his rhythm. So to reel off those four centuries and six frames, he did it at a breakneck speed. The match turned around so quickly. And I think, you know, you think of the great sort of Wembley heroes of, well, still Jimmy White at that time and Alex Higgins in years prior to that. That was the sort of snooker that they were famed for. But they never even played at those two to quite that consistent level. So I think that was what uh, was part of it as well. It really established Paul Hunter as a Wembley legend, which he only added to 
uh, by winning it on, on a couple more occasions. So yeah, that, that's a big selection for me. Obviously, I was gutted. I would have been absolutely thrilled to have been there to see Fergal win the Masters. But uh, yeah, j- just a, a wonderful final. And as you say, part of a real golden era for the Masters around that time. Absolutely. Well, of course, there'll be people screaming at, this, at, this, at their podcast device now saying, well, what about this match and what about that match? Well, let us know, by all means. Let us know what matches you think we've missed, what matches should be in the mix as the greatest ever. Remember, outside of the World Championship, so the Crucible doesn't count, World Championship doesn't count. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. And hopefully uh, next week we'll read some of them out. And by the way, thanks for your emails. We've had a few emails from people suggesting... Uh, topics. Uh, I had an email um, suggesting we talk about what's the best tournament ever played, which is a whole oh, new, yeah. a whole new can of worms there to be opened. And uh, also, we had an email about the ranking system, all sorts of suggestions, which is great. It's great people are listening. I'm well aware the audio is not pristine. We're doing it on Skype, but uh, there is a global pandemic on. You know, if we got it, we got to make do. It's either this or, or shouting down a rolled-up newspaper. So hopefully, well, we, might, we might try that for the next one. Just, just on hmm. that point, Dave. I think you cut out for a moment there while you were giving that email address. So you might ah. have to give that again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, well, I'll do it maybe Morse code. I'll just not, no. Okay. So snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. And let us know your views, not only on this topic, but on on potential future topics one of them we're possibly next week going to talk about is um players who've won one ranking event and it's quite a few big names there actually didn't go on to win other ranking events although as we'll explain next time they won other things for some of them um and also remember i'm, I'm doing a, a little side project lockdown diaries with various people so sean murphy's have already done hopefully there'll be a few more coming up soon so whatever podcast feed you use they'll be hopefully popping up on there as we just try and kind of entertain ourselves and hopefully other people during this period um there's still no news on what's happening in future tournaments obviously the the situation um is continuing people are locked down there's no no support happening at all um we hope the world championship and the tour championship we played but that's a logistical nightmare because world snooker at the moment just don't know when they can start again so they can't start planning it um we'll wait and see but hopefully when it does all start again we'll have more matches to add to to our list but that is it for now so thanks for listening and uh, we will hopefully see you or you will hear us next week sports social podcast network i'm victoria cash thanks for calling the lucky land hotline If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.